Well, good evening, Calvary Chapel, West Grove. Man, it is great to be here with all of you. I must say, I, I'm not a very emotional person, like in general. I don't have a lot of emotions, but man, that last song, the Oh, praise the name. I, I was, even myself, getting choked up, even while worshiping to it, even while singing with all of you guys and hearing all of you guys raise your voices in worship of our King. And I think as I worship in that song, and I, and, I, and I think of it, it says in the very beginning, I cast my mind to Calvary, and I think as I evaluate the gravity of my own sin, my own unworthiness, my own inadequacies, and then I look to Christ, on Calvary and what he did for us. And then to think of the fact that, oh, praise his name forevermore. Man, everything, all of us, unworthy, undeserving of it, but because of what Christ did and his coming, we will have eternity and we will be able to sing his praises forever. And that, that gets me excited. That gets me, I, and I couldn't even help it. I was, <laughs> I was like, man, Lord, right? Why right now? Right before coming up here. But it's so sweet to see. I just can't help but just to worship, and it gets me excited. And it gets me thinking about that day, and I hope that day comes soon. But with that, I just wanted to give a little bit of what's going through in my head right now. But if you guys would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26, Acts chapter 26, And before we get into it, before we read the word tonight, let us first get into another word of prayer. Lord, we come to you tonight, Lord. And Lord, we are so thankful, God. So thankful for everything that you have done, Lord. Even tonight, Lord, I just still, Lord, just feeling Lord, that aspect of worship, Lord, I, I can't get that out of my head, Lord, just being able to worship you in this place, even now, Lord, with everything going on in our world, Lord, everything that is happening, God, we can come and we can worship you. Lord, I pray as we get into the word tonight, Lord, that that would be constantly going through our mind, Lord, that we would cast our mind to Calvary, God. We would think of what you have done and how that enables us to do everything else, God. It is only by your power alone that we live and move and have our being. And so I pray tonight, Lord, that as we look into your word, you would get me out of the way, Lord. It is not my words. It doesn't matter what I have to say, Lord. It is your word. And we look into your word, Lord. We want to learn from you, God. And so, Lord, please speak to us now. Please minister to our hearts, God. Let us walk out of here different than the way that we came in. Lord, I pray that you would do that work right now in us. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. So we come tonight in Acts chapter 26, and we come in this part of Acts, in this passage of Acts, Paul is on trial. We saw in the previous chapters, Paul had been arrested by the Jews, but since being a Roman citizen, he was to be tried before Roman officials. And so he goes before Governor Felix and eventually uh, Festus. Festus comes in and succeeds Felix. And so he is, he's there, he, he's standing trial before these men, before these governors of this Roman province. And as they, both Felix and Festus, as, they, as he stands trial before them, they both keep Paul in prison 
with no holding evidence, nothing to accuse Paul of, but only for the pure aspect of to appease the Jews. The Jews are the ones that have brought an offense against him. And so as not to throw things out of whack once again, they keep Paul in prison. They keep him away, locked up. But as we came to chapter 25 last week, we, we saw last week that Festus has run into a bit of a problem. You see, Paul has appealed to Caesar. And so with appealing to Caesar, it was something that every Roman citizen had the right to do. Every Roman citizen could appeal to Caesar to go to trial before Caesar. And every one of the governors, every Roman citizen, they had to abide by that. They couldn't overrule that and say, no, you're going to be governed here. Your appeal to Caesar lasts. And so with that, it brings a problem to Festus. Festus now must send Paul to be tried in Rome, but with no written accusation against him due to the fact that there is nothing to accuse Paul of. Nothing that could be brought against him. Nothing he had in writing. No evidence. Nothing that would, would, that would stand in trial. And so this is troubling to Festus. And so right in the midst of that dilemma, right in the midst of that, Herod Agrippa arrives on the scene, paying a sort of courtesy call to Festus. And so with this, Festus sees a way out of this problem, a way to handle this situation, a way out of his troubles. If Agrippa listens to this man, he may come up with a viable accusation for Festus to write down to accuse Paul, to have something to send with Paul to Caesar. Uh, and it would, give, it would give Festus some sort of justifiable, some sort of justification to stand trial in Rome. And also at the same time, it would solve the problem because he would be able to keep things in balance. He would be able to appease the Jews. And so this comes the perfect situation for Festus. Here is Herod Agrippa. This is a man that can bring an accusation against Paul that can make my job a little bit easier. And so this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 26. Paul is in Caesarea in a Roman praetorian before Agrippa, Bernice, Agrippa's wife, all the entourage of high officials and captains and before Festus. Let's look at the word, verses one through 11. It says, then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which, you have, which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Verse 7, to this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also do in did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. 
And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You see, as we see from verse 1, what was it that Jesus had told Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when he had commissioned him to go? He says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Jesus told to Paul, you are going to bear my name before kings. And that is exactly where Paul finds himself here, testifying before kings. And not just one, but also the governor and the whole entourage of people that have joined in to see Paul's defense. And so he says here in verse 2, when seeing about this, it says, so Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, verse 2, I think myself happy King Agrippa. Just want to stop there real quick. I think myself happy. You see, we must understand this. Paul didn't have to come to this meeting. He didn't have to be in this meeting right here. He had already appealed to Rome. These Roman officials had to honor that. They couldn't decide anything until he was gone to Rome. And so he did not have to be at this meeting that he's called to here. But he came seeing an opportunity, an opportunity to preach the gospel. And so here it is, Festus, right here, looking at at this situation as an opportunity for an accusation. Agrippa is looking at this situation out of curiosity. I wonder what this man has to say. And Paul is looking at this very situation as an opportunity to see the gospel move forward to preach Christ before all those who are before him. And you see, as it says here, as as Paul says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. This wasn't a sort of flattery before trial. This wasn't, oh, I'm happy to be before you. uh, I am a loyal subject to you. This wasn't a flattery to King Agrippa. Rather, Paul is happy because he is walking in his very calling. He is walking in the exact place that he is called to be, testifying before kings, preaching the gospel to all those that are around him. I think myself happy, King Agrippa. You see, that is exactly an area, though, the the preaching of the gospel that we can fall so short of oftentimes in the church. You see, we can become so satisfied, so happy with learning satisfied with fellowship, satisfied with unity and with growth that we forget about the gospel call, the the, the commission that we have been given, the very call of God, the very ministry that God has given us to have the ministry of reconciliation. Yes, learn. Yes, grow. Yes, let's, let's be satisfied in those things. Let's be satisfied with the fact that we are set apart, that God has called us to be different than the world before us. But let that very thing, let that drive us to go into the world, to reach the world. That is the calling by God. And that is why Paul is happy here because he is fulfilling that calling. He is preaching before kings. He is testifying of Christ before all those that are before him. Let us not just stop at growing. Let us not just stop at being in the church. Let us be those that are reaching the world around us. It is a call of every single person. It is the great commission, the ministry each and every one of us have been called to. 
And as Paul does it here, he says, I, am, I, find, I think myself happy. And you see, the thing is, is with one of these, is the greatest ways we reach this world around us, the great joy in reaching this world around us is by the testimony that we share. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see, when we go and reach the world by sharing our testimony with the world, it is the visible power of Christ in a transformed life. As we go and we share, as we go and see, show people the work that has been done in our lives, people can see the power of God at work. And so that is exactly what Paul does here. That is exactly what he, how he moves. He goes and he shares his testimony before this whole entourage of people. He goes and shares the work that Christ has done in his life. And so it says in verse 4, as we continue on, after Paul tells, let's go back actually to verse 3. After Paul tells King Agrippa, he says, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which, you have to, which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. And so as he asks King Agrippa to hear out his testimony, he goes in verse four and he begins his testimony, taking it all the way back to his youth. It says in verse four, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Let's just stop there real quick. Of the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Paul taking King Agrippa all the way back to his growing up, all the way back, showing his testimony. He grew up in Jerusalem. He was born in Tarsus, but grew up in Jerusalem. He studied the scriptures he was part of the strictest sect of Judaism, it says. And even in that strictest sect, he says, I lived a Pharisee. You see, this is actually, the Greek wording for this actually makes it stronger than we read it. It actually doesn't come out in English. It is almost to say, I was the most strictest. Something that is a fallacy in the English language, but it's to portray the picture Paul was zealous in his Judaism. He wasn't just part of the strict sect. He wasn't just very strict in himself, but being part of this strict sect of Judaism, he was the strictest. He was zealous in his Jew Jewish faith. It is exactly what we see mirrored as Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter three. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee, he says in Philippians three. He didn't take it lightly. You see, Paul is coming here knowing that Agrippa, knowing that he knows the Jewish ways, knowing that he is an expert in Jewish customs. Paul is saying, I wasn't just a so-called Jew. I was all in. I, Jew, Judaism was everything to me. I studied the scriptures. I knew the way. I fully pursued it with my life. You see, here Paul is setting the stage of his testimony. He is setting them up to, to see the powerful work of his own, of the, transform, the transforming work of Christ in his life. He wasn't just someone that all studied and then became a Christian or be, but knew Jesus. No, he knew Judaism. He studied it. He lived it in his life. And so with that, he continues in verse six and seven, and he says, and now I stand 
and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. He says he's being accused for standing, for wanting the, the hope of the promise of God made unto, the fa- unto his fathers. What is this hope? This hope was that the coming of the Messiah to deliver Israel. What Paul is saying here in verses 6 and 7 is that I am being condemned for believing what every Jew believes. Every Jew knows about the hope, the the coming Messiah. Every Jew is waiting for that hope. Even as it says, um, even as it says of the 12 tribes, to this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. This very longing for the coming Messiah was what every Jew was after. Every Jew had hoped for. And St. Paul is saying, I am no different than that. I am no different. I too am hoping for the Messiah. It is exactly what Pastor Brad had spoke about on Sunday. You see, Christianity is not different than Judaism. Rather, Christianity has almost fulfilled Judaism. Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism, of the promises, of the hope that these Jews were looking for. And so Paul is saying, I am continuing in that. I I have the same hope that is in Judaism, but I have seen how this hope is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so Paul even directs it to verse 8. And he says, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Remember back in verse 3 how I just, we just read it a moment ago. King Agrippa was an expert in all customs and questions concerning the Jews. King Agrippa knew the scriptures. Common Jewish hope was in the resurrection. This is something that was talked about by the Old Testament prophets, by, by, by Moses and the Old Testament prophets. They had this hope of resurrection at the same time. And so Paul is layering it here. He's talking about it with, with King Agrippa. You know the Jewish customs. You know the questions. You know what we believe. And just as with all Jews, I believe in a coming Messiah. Just as with all Jews, I believe in the resurrection. We agree in these things, but now where they disagreed or where they, King Agrippa differed from Paul was that Paul said all of these things, the resurrected Messiah was in Jesus. That is the connection. It comes down to Jesus being that resurrected Messiah. And so Paul continues his testimony, and he's bringing it up to King Agrippa right here, as it says in verses 9 through 11, almost relating it to King Agrippa. He says, I indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Even in being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. Paul brings it back to Agrippa's own mindset. His own mindset here. Paul is almost in a way saying, I know what you are thinking, King Agrippa. 
I know what you are thinking here. Yes, we both believe in the coming Messiah. Yes, we both believe in resurrection. But I know what you are thinking. Jesus, what does Jesus have to do with this? Jesus is not that coming Messiah. And Paul relates it to himself here. I too, I myself once thought the same way as you. I myself, as it says in verse 9, I myself thought I must do any, many things contrary to the name of Jesus. I was in the same boat as you. I believed the same things. I, w- I had the same goals. I persecuted, imprisoned, killed. I called, caused others to blaspheme the name of Jesus. I'm no different than you. I thought the exact same way as you. And so Paul is relating himself here, even saying here that he, he casted his vote, implying here, as it says in verse 11, or sorry, in verse 10, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, implying that Paul was even part of the Sanhedrin. He had a vote. He, he was part of the Sanhedrin. He advocated for the death of Christians. And so when, it, when it's talking about this right here, when Paul is saying this, Paul is saying, I, I am exactly where you had it, but I have been changed. And this is where we see Paul talking about the transforming work of Christ. It is, he, he grew up a Jew, a serious Jew, someone who knew the law, who studied the law, who lived the law. He, he lived it in such a way that he persecuted Christians. He hated Christians. He, he wanted nothing to do. He wanted to dis, di, discard Jesus and everyone who followed after him. Even saying that Paul was enraged against believers, he said, persecuting them even to foreign cities. And one of those very foreign cities that he persecutes them to is Damascus. The very city that we will see that Paul, on his way to, gets transformed. He, he comes into contact or encounters, as I should say, he encounters Christ on the way, and that changes everything. And this is the conversion. This is the part where Paul is saying, this is where the transforming work happened. This is where everything changed in my life. And this is something that we see in, chap- in verses 12 through 20, which were actually covered earlier this month, and so we're actually gonna skip those, but what Paul is saying is he brings them through those very account, his own account, how he was traveling to Damascus, and on his way, he encounters Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in this, Paul is enlightened, his eyes are opened, he goes from the blindness to now seeing in reality the truth of Christ, and in this, he is then commissioned in verses 12 through 20 to now go and take this gospel, go and take it, preach it to the Jews, preach it to the Gentiles. And so in this, we pick up in verse 21, We pick up in verse 21, and it's continuing his story. Now we see from Paul's early life to Paul's conversion in 12 through 20 to now 21, we see now his post-conversion as he continues sharing his testimony before all of these, this entourage of people. And he says in verse 21, actually, let's read verse 19 or else it won't really make sense. But in verse 19, it says, therefore... King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. Verse 21, for these reasons, 
the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. For these reasons, Paul's life is changed. It is converted. And as he goes and he is obedient to God's heavenly call, God's heavenly commission, and as he goes preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, it says because of this reason, because of his preaching to the Gentiles, saying that Gentiles could inherit salvation, because of this, it says in verse 20, and for these reasons, the Jews seized me and tried to kill me. But look what happens in this testimony in verse 22. It says, therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said to come. Look what is testimony. Paul obtained help from God. You may be asking, what help is he talking about here? What help did Paul receive? Well, you will see earlier in Acts throughout his own ministry when in Lystra, they, they killed him outside the city. They stoned him to death and the Lord raised him up. When in Philippi, they put him in jail and the Lord brought an earthquake to free him. You see, there was many other cases in Paul's life where God helped him, where God helped bring him to continue his ministry, to continue going forward. And even after he says this in Acts 26, even on his voyage to Rome, he's shipwrecked, he's bitten by a snake, and yet still God is, God is seeing him through. God is helping him to continue in his ministry. He is constantly helped by God as he ministers, which isn't just a testimony of Paul here. This isn't just a testimony of Paul, but this is a testimony of every one of us. I'm sure of all of us, if we could even, if we think about it right now, I'm sure we have many stories when we could say, man, God helped me in that situation. God helped me. There is no way that I could have gotten out of this situation. There is no way I could have done this task or, or been there except by God's providence except by the fact that God has helped me. I know there has been many times with even my own life, whether it be the Lord's protection in the mission field, going through things and, and being like, I, I don't know how this happened, but somehow I'm still walking and I'm still living and therefore I just praise God. There's been many occasions like that, or whether it be giving me the strength to complete a task that I knew I couldn't do on my own. There's been so many times where I have something that I know I have to do, some person that I know I need to talk to, or whether it be some sort of message to give, and I'm like, Lord, I don't even know where to go from here. I don't even know what to do. There is no way that I can do this. And the Lord sees me through. The Lord the Lord sees me through. He, he helps me through it. And that is exactly the testimony of us believers that we have. And when we see those things happen, we just rejoice. The, the only way possible to explain it is because God is doing it. Because God is moving. And that is exactly what Paul says here. Therefore, having attained help from God. And it brings forth a, a wonderful truth. If God calls you to a ministry, he is going to sustain you. If God calls you to do something, he is going to be the one that sees you through it. And if that is any kind of consolation to us, if there is anything that God is calling you to even now, God is going to be the one to help you through it. God is going to be the one that will sustain you through it, even as he did to Paul here. Therefore, having obtained help from God, 
To this day I stand, he says. Having obtained help from God, I am still here. This is Paul's testimony. He can say, I have been changed by the resurrected Christ. They have tried to kill me. They have tried to shut me up. But God has helped me. And so I am still here to witness both to small and to great. There is no other explanation for what Paul was able to do except for the fact that God was seeing him through it. God had helped him. And notice what he says at the end of verse 22. He says, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said to come. Saying no other things. Paul, all he did was preach Moses and the prophets. What they said would come. What they pointed to. I'm just preaching what they preached, he said. What, what examples of that? Isaiah 53, Psalms 22. And it's exactly what Paul, what's recorded here in verse 23. The very message that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. The very things that we see recorded in the prophets, that we see recorded by Moses. These very things all point to Jesus. Paul has not made up his own mindset. He has not said what he, his own words. He has only come back to the prophets, the very things that they said, and he has explained how they all point to Jesus. And so in this testimony that Paul is giving, in the testimony of his own life, in his own mission, his own, uh, his own mission that God has brought him forth out of, his own words, he is pointing to King Agrippa. The prophets point to Jesus. The prophets point to Jesus. There is no getting out of this. You know the prophets. You know the Jewish customs. You cannot deny the fact that Jesus is the one, that all of this is culminated around. And so as Paul points it out, as he gives this testimony, and as he proclaims Jesus Christ, look what happens in verse 24. It says, now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Festus, right in the middle of Paul proclaiming his testimony, seeing what Christ has done, making his statement about Christ, Festus blurts out. All of this talk of resurrection and visions and voices from heaven, this is a madman, he says. As shown with Festus, the human mind gets to a place where if I don't understand it, it must be insane. If I don't understand it, then it can't be true. But isn't that the testimony of every believer in this place? To unbelievers, this transformation, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense at all. How do you become a completely different person? The unbelieving will not understand this. Why would you give that up? Why would, how have you become so different? I knew you like two years ago and you were a completely different person. This doesn't make at all any sense at all. And because of their not being able to understand it, they will discount it. They will call it fake. This can't be real. You must be part of a cult. You have been brainwashed. You're a madman. Because it is exactly as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those that are perishing. They will not understand unless the light of the gospel shines upon them. 
This is what Paul is saying. This is make evidence right here through Festus as he blurts out, you have gone mad, Paul. Well, technically all of us Christians then have gone mad because we live for Christ, because we display that transformed life that only Christ can give us. It goes beyond understanding. That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of the gospel. It transforms life. It is the reality of the gospel. And all of you here today, your lives attest to that reality. Your lives attest to that transformation. If you live for Christ, if you believe in Christ, and he has made you new. And so Festus's interruption sets the stage for now Paul to zero in on King Agrippa. Look at verse 25. He says, but, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. You see, what he says here, Paul says to Festus, I am not mad. I I speak soundly, and the king knows it. He puts the king on blast right here. You see, I'm speaking soundly. I'm speaking logical and with reason, and the king knows it. Everyone knows that Jesus lived. Everyone knows that Jesus died, and everyone knows about a claim to the resurrection. It hasn't passed the king's knowing. And Agrippa's silence here, even after Festus blurts this out, to see King Agrippa silent here is attesting to the fact that he knows this to be true. It is attesting to the very reality of what is being said. This is historical fact. The king Agrippa is not far from this truth. He knows it. He knows this happened. And so Paul directs it straight to him. He says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. You see, Paul directs it straight at him. He does a call to action here, a call to a decision. He doesn't let King Agrippa just off the hook, oh, I'm just going to proclaim this. He goes straight at him. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the prophets, which puts King Agrippa in a very tricky place? You see, to say yes, that he does believe the prophets, is to agree with Paul that they all point to Jesus Christ. Paul has just made his case. He's made it so clear and so evident that if King Agrippa is to say, yes, I do believe the prophets, then it is to show that Jesus is the Messiah, that Paul is correct, that he is speaking truth. But to say no here is to denounce Judaism. It's to denounce all of the Jews that what you guys, I don't believe in the prophets. And therefore, this whole religion, this whole Judaism is false. And so King Agrippa is stuck right in the middle here. And so with this, King Agrippa doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer this to Paul, but instead he avoids it saying, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. Almost. You see, almost is not good enough, though. Almost is not a Christian. 
You cannot be an almost Christian. There is not someone who can just say, I'm going to dabble in it a little bit. You are either all in or not at all. You give Christ everything or you give him nothing. There is no almost Christians. And this is something we must know. This is something we must proclaim because we are fully Christ or we are not at all. And you see here, King Agrippa, he says, you almost persuade me, which means I am not going to accept this. He is rejecting it. And you may ask, well, why does he not believe? How can he reject it when Paul has made this so clear? When Paul has spoken to him this very word and made his case so clear, how can he reject it? How can he say, you almost, but I'm not going to believe it? How can he do that? Well, the answer is clear. Jesus made mention of this in John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. How could he reject it? How could King Agrippa reject it even though he knows in his conscience he cannot deny the truth of it? Because he loves his sin. He loves his sin. You almost persuade me, but I am not going to give up my sinful lifestyle. I am not going to give up that which I love. And how many today are in the same boat? How many today do this exact same thing? We say that we love Christ, but in our actions we deny him because we love our sin over Christ. We may not say that we are almost Christians, but we do the very actions of almost Christians. We say that we love him, but in our actions, we deny him because we love our sin more. But I also think there is another aspect that made Herod an almost Christian, and that is Herod's own position. You see, all those around him, his wife Bernice, and then his, th- this governor Festus, all right beside him, even Festus blurting out, Paul is a madman. I think it wasn't just the love of sin, but the fear of man that made him almost a Christian. He had a fear of man. He was sooner to be condemned out of fear than to be sneered at by those around him. He didn't want to look weak, and so he would rather actually be weak and not standing up. So worried about what others thought of him, what others would think, would Festus call me a madman, that it cost him his own soul. It is easy to have a fear of man. It is easy to go with the crowd, but we cannot be those people. You see, Paul here, as he is declaring it, as they are mocking him, Paul, you are mad. He stands firm in his faith. He stands firm. He proclaims boldly that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and he stands firm in that. We cannot be those people that back down when others come against us. We cannot hold the same heart that King Agrippa does here, cowering in fear. But I love Paul's response in verse 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. 
Paul is saying, I want you to have what I have, the freedom of soul in Christ. Paul could die on the spot right here for what he has come against in King Agrippa and in Festus. To declare what he did, the king could have him killed on the spot. But he is saying by his very actions, his boldness to proclaim truth, he is saying right here that I would die to save King Agrippa. King Agrippa, I would die for the fact that you come to salvation. I don't care if it costs me my life in what I say. The truth needs to be proclaimed because I care for your soul is what Paul is saying. And he says it by saying, I wouldn't wish my chains upon him also. Oh, if you could just have what I have, but not my chains. Oh, the heart of Paul here. How many of us say that or pray that of our enemies or our making it really relevant today of our political adversaries. Oh, I pray that they could come to salvation. I pray nothing against them, that they would not have chains, but that they could come to know Christ. Oh, I would give my life for them so that they could taste of the freedom, the joy that is in Christ. How many of us plead in prayer over those who do not know him? over those who openly reject him, over those who are enemies of the faith, how many of us plead as Paul did, I so wish that you could come to Christ, that you could know the freedom that I do. Paul is laying out for us the heart of a true believer here. Here it is, Festus, King Agrippa, the entourage around him, they had everything in the world, but in reality, they had nothing. You see, Paul may have had a chain around, upon his arm, but they carried a chain upon their souls. And so Paul is saying, I so pray that you could be as I am, as you could taste the true freedom there is in Christ. that you may become altogether as I am except for my chains, except for these chains. And so with this, in verse 30, he said, it says, when he has said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They get up, they meet among themselves, they declare his innocence, but look at verse two, again, fixating on their own cowardly ways. This man, it says, in verse 32, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Something you guys need to know here. Something you need to know is this letter hadn't been written yet. They hadn't sent Paul to Rome yet. Caesar didn't even know about this yet. They could have let him go right here and right now, but they hid behind Paul's own appeal, cowering away from the Jews, stuck still in their ways, wanting to appease. But here's the thing, when Paul does eventually go to Rome after verse 32 here in the next chapters, when Paul finally goes to Rome, what happens? Is he, is he discouraged by, by Agrippa's almost conversion? Not at all. He continues preaching Christ. You see, God didn't call him to save people. He called him to bear witness of him. And it is the same for us. 
We are not called to save people. We are called to proclaim Christ. We are called to preach Christ. It doesn't matter if it hasn't worked in the past for you. It doesn't matter if there has been discouragements along the way. Oh, I've preached to people here and here and they, they've always rejected me. I just don't know what to say. I, don't, I, I get choked up in my words when I go proclaiming. You are called to proclaim Christ by sharing your story with others. Share what Christ has done in you. Proclaim that from the rooftop. Share about Christ. Even if it has never worked, even if you don't see the fruit of it at all on this side of eternity, you proclaim Christ because Christ has called you to proclaim his name just as Paul does here. And here, Paul is unmoved. He is undeterred. He continues in his calling. You see, Paul stood unwavering before kings. We are called to stand for Christ everywhere we go. No matter where we are, we are called to proclaim the truths of Christ. And if you are mocked, and, and you will be, you will be mocked, I almost can guarantee that, then let us be fools for Christ. These people, they saw Paul as a fool. Oh, you're a madman. Let us be fools for Christ. Let us proclaim Christ. Let us not cower down. Let us proclaim him in all truth. This is our calling as believers. Let us rise up. Let us be those people that change the world because of Christ and what he has done. We don't just sing worship songs. We proclaim them to the world. If we will praise his name forever, how can we not praise his name now? How can we not be out there sharing the truth of Christ and what he has done in our lives? The world is changed by those who think about what God thinks of them, not what mere mortals think of them. That is what changes the world. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Proclaim Christ just as Paul did here. When you're discouraged, move forward. Keep going and see how God moves. See him work and see him change the world as we know it, as he changed the world through Paul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that your word does not keep us where we're at, God. That, that we can't just come in here, Lord. We can't read your word and just leave the same way. Lord, you have called us to obedience, God. And so when your word commands us, when your word says, go, Lord, how can we do anything else? How can we not go? How can we not proclaim your truth? Lord, let us not be silent Christians. Let us not be almost Christians. Lord, let us be those who are passionate for your name, zealous for the truth of your word. Lord, who are obedient to your commands. Lord, we want to serve you, God. We want to be the church on fire for your name. The church who doesn't just stand back, but the church, Lord, that is willing to be fools for Christ. Because, Lord, we care what you think, not what others think. We care for you, Lord. We want to be used by you. So, Lord, please use us. Please have your way in us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen.